Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. We're in the midst of our spring fun drive, and we got a great text from Lynn Perna of Marlboro, Vermont. So happy to find Monty and Khalees. I am streaming from Vermont. Love giving up Terry Gross at 3 o'clock oh. as a longtime VPR listener. <laughs> Want you to know I'm making a mail-in contribution just because of the Fab 413. Oh. Hey, thanks, Lynn. <laughs> you can donate at nepm.org right now, but then text us. Tell us that you made a donation at 1-800-639-9120. Later this week on the show, we're really excited to welcome our Tanglewood correspondent for the year, hopefully, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. That's Thursday. And later in the show, women's basketball past and present with the head coach of the Sweet 16-bound Smith College basketball team. And Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid asks, is space for everyone? Should be. But first... Today begins what we are calling the Great Western Mass Pizza Quest. Should we come up with like an intro sounder for it? We probably should, yes. Pizza Quest! Where indeed, in the four counties of these, our state of Massachusetts, is the good pizza? This was an idea Khalees had, where we could reach out to you, the listener, where you would tell us where the best pizza is in the four counties of Western Mass. And it started because I lived in East Hampton and was sorely disappointed by most of the supply. We know that we have some listeners in Connecticut, and we love you, and we love your New Haven pizza. New Haven pizza is, outside of Neapolitan pizza, the best pizza in the country. So all pizza from Connecticut is disqualified. Yes. This has got to be... The style itself is not, and we will get into that. The first logical place for us to go for the great pizza quest is right down the street from New England Public Media at the Red Rose in Springfield. Khalees, you've been here. I have not been inside here. I have gotten pizza from here, but that was during my move to Springfield, and so let's just pretend I have a clean slate. I have never been here, and we've brought an amateur pizza expert with us who we'll introduce you to as we enter the Red Rose. Here we go. It smells like pizza. On your left as you go in, you can see all of the people making the pizza. It's a pretty incredible scene here. The dining room is huge and sprawling. Beautiful view of Main Street. There you go, guys. What we're aiming to do is you, the listener, email us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Or send us a text at 800-639-9120. Anytime. And you tell us where your favorite pizza is in the four counties of Western Mass. And we will try to go there and we will try to take you out. I mean, not like at the knees. That's a your message. It means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. I mean, take you to the pizza place and you can tell us why. So this is like we're totally stealing from the Phantom Gourmet. They do not know we're here doing this. We're just doing it of our own accord. Even though we have this giant recorder at the table. Yeah, but we could be, who knows what we could be doing. Fair enough. We don't have like an NEPM flag, as they call it, on the microphone. And we decided to bring with us our good buddy from our time at our previous radio station, who has now moved on to work with the work that he went to school to do with HAP Housing. Is that what it's called now? No, Wayfinders. Oh, with Wayfinders. <laughs> I knew it was like, like so, I knew they changed it. It's only been about five years. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. With Wayfinders. Hello. Good, how are you? Mark Latanzi from Wayfinders, working right down the street in Springfield. 
Mark Latanzi is the best amateur pizzaiolo I know, and a former restaurateur yourself. True, long time ago, but yes, I had a, I had a cafe in the 90s in, the Green, in Greenfield, Green River Cafe, for anyone who remembers it. We did not make pizza. Right. The pizza passion, I guess that's my pandemic obsession. And you grew up nearish to New Haven, so you grew up around the greatest pizza. Yeah, my, my entire family was from New Haven. You know, my mother and sister live outside of Hartford, but New Haven pizza was always what we got. We visited the grandparents, and thankfully, there are enough of those style joints up in the Hartford area that we can get it there too. So I think we should come up with rules. Okay. We should probably get the same pizza at every place. I agree. Mm. Should it be like half cheese? Because cheese is like the vanilla pizza and kind of is like <laughs> the way to decide what good pizza is? Yes. And then should we do like the other half, a topping, and always get the same topping? Or what should we do? I think it should be something like that. I'm kind of of the mind that pizza in general should not have more than three toppings on it. Yeah, I mean, there's classics, right? That everyone likes and expects. Sausage with a vegetable or two, a plain pie. Those are kind of the benchmarks, I think. Yeah. Plain pie is by far the like the bench bench. Yeah. And then we see how you do with toppings because sometimes we've experienced pizzas where they just don't understand how toppings work and it's all sad. Or what if you take a classic topping like pepperoni? Like should there be a universal pepperoni standard? Right. Does a cup? Does it lie flat? Yeah. These right. are the things people obsess about. So we could go and get a half cheese and half pepperoni pizza everywhere or something else. What do we think? I'm pro that, yeah. I'm pro cup. Pepperoni cup. Right. Are we limited so. to like one pie? I mean, what are we talking about here? What's the budget? We're going to try to keep it a reasonable lunch budget. I mean, we are public media. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, we don't have to go to the listeners to support our pizza addiction. <laughs> That's right. I mean, this we are in the middle of the fun drive. <laughs> this pizza is brought to you by Agnes from Greenfield. Thank you for underwriting our pizza, Thank Agnes. Thank you for underwriting our pizza. Here's a sweatshirt. You can come with us with pizza next time. Yeah, there you go. But I also, one of my benchmarks is also like the vegetables and how are they treated. Like some yes. go on raw at automatic, that's fine. But like mushrooms from a can, mushrooms fresh, mushrooms yep. sauteed first. Yep. I like sauteed first. I'm going to say that's my bias. That's a lot more prep work. I don't know that everybody's going to do that. Yeah. My thing with toppings, and I feel like we should have, we need a cheese pizza and we need a topping and pizza. Mm -hmm. Toppings are always contentious, right? right? Like not everybody likes mushrooms. Not everybody likes onions. Don't put pineapple on my pizza. Correct, 100% all the time. <laughs> Too much flavor awesomeness can't overpower your battery, can it? Dude, this is pineapple. Try before you deny. Pineapple's out. Pineapple is definitely out. There's a size question too, mm -hmm. right? Because no matter where you go and I stick by this terrible, I will die on this hill, party pizzas are the worst. Like the, the bigger the pizza is, the harder it is to do well. What do you think, amateur pizza Iolo? I think there's a, yes, there's a point to which, the, you, you know, unless you have a, a beautiful oven and a lot of room, where that becomes more of a, it gets a little underdone, you know? Yeah. Um, it's hard to maneuver. That said, there is a pizza to dollar ratio that I've seen mathematically proven that you always need to order a large. If you buy a small, your cost per bite is dramatically higher. I agree. So let's get a large, half cheese, quarter pepperoni, quarter veggie if the lettuce. Mark Latanzi, you pick the veggie. Oh, God. Well, or we I'm, could just do veggie. I'm going to pick mushrooms. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm for it. All right. Or we could do pepperoni and mushrooms. Sure. sure. All right, that's it. All right, so, so so the rule is what? Half cheese, half pepperoni mushroom across the board everywhere. Now everywhere going forward, that's it. All right. Yep. All okay. right. Let's put in the order. The pizza has arrived here at Red Rose in Springfield, and the large pizza is oval, which is interesting. <laughs> I don't see a lot of uh, oval pizzas. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I agreed. This is larger than I was expecting. <laughs> it's very large. Uh, yeah. Square slices. How do you feel about that? 
I'm okay with square slices. Yeah. No. Should ask for triangle. We forgot. We're not going to get <laughs> them with Can you request no. triangle? I think any pizza joint you can request triangle. I've certainly done it. I like triangles. I, I do too, actually. I do too. If you try to cut an oval into a triangle, it would be very weird. It'd yeah. be like it's, yeah. it's like the I Picasso would. of pizza. And they're clearly committed to the oval because the tray it's on is oval. Right. It's not just like an oval pie on a round tray. They're on. They're all in on ovals. Yes. Luckily, the shape doesn't affect the taste. Now, my biggest mistake that I usually make with pizza is digging right in because I'm so hungry, and then burning my mouth and then not enjoying food for the next week. <laughs> I'm not gonna make that mistake. So we have a tiny bit of curl on the pepperoni, like a little bit. We've got canned mushrooms. Yes, yes, mushrooms from a jar. Okay. All right. But digging in. Look at the He's looking at crust. I'm looking at crust. I'm looking at the undercarriage, right? Spots. Give me your crust. You got some spot. You got some spotting. You got a nice, nice tan crust underneath. You, you some want spotting. some spotting in Europe. You want some, and yeah. if you're like hardcore about it, you want some burn, some yeah. char. Yes. Right. The hotter the oven, mm -hmm. like the coal ovens of New Haven Pizza, yep. or the wood-fired ovens that people love, that yes. makes the crust crackery. Yeah. yeah, and it's also about the hydration level of the dough, which is getting way too geeky, but yeah, you can tweak your dough recipe to encourage more of that char. Yeah. This has got the cornmeal on the bottom, that's going to be nice and crunchy. But you do, like, the char also helps with, like, structure in general, like, picking up a slice, no matter the size, like, more of those spots will mean that you can hold it without it flopping over and just dying in your hand. Yeah, you don't want the flop. There's also, I have to say, nice browning on the cheese. Yeah, I do yeah. like that. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That doesn't always happen. But it should happen. Yep. Yeah. The pepperoni at least appears to be kind of like your conventional, you bought it out of a bag at a store pepperoni, as yes. opposed to some super fancy, like grown on a farm in Vermont yeah. pepperoni. And, yeah, yeah, this is not the cupping style hipster pepperoni that you're going to get at some pizza joints. I love <laughs> cupping hipster pepperoni. Mm -hmm. Welcome to NPM. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. You've taken the first bite, Latanzi. Still too hot. Damn it, I hate waiting. I'm so hungry, though. Me too. First bite, Khalees, thoughts? The cheese is nice. I haven't gotten to any of the other important bits, but the cheese is nice. <laughs> right. It is too hot still to, to do the other parts. I'm going to wait so yeah. that my first yes. bite is a, a true impression and not like uh, on the cusp of danger impression. So the sauce is very oregano heavy. Yeah, it's a cooked sauce too, which is fine. Most pizza joints use a cooked sauce and definitely has a, a the high oregano profile. But it's tasty enough. It's so oregano-y that it tastes not tomato-y. Sometimes I think tomatoes, the sauce is too sweet. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's this perfect balance of like Regina and the North End. Their sauce is this perfect sweet savory balance. That's what I like best about that pizza. This red rose. I'm liking the cheese and the crust. <laughs> the sauce, too oregano-y, in my opinion. I think that for the, the pepperoni and mushroom version of this, the mushrooms definitely balance out the oregano heaviness, but I will also say you can't rely on toppings to fix some problems in your sauce. It, and the oregano gives it like a heat. I don't, I don't have any red pepper flakes on it yet, and it's spicier than I'm used to for most pizza. I love spicy, so it doesn't bother me, but I, I can imagine people would eat this and think, spicy. Right, right. They'd be wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a classic classic red sauce. There's nothing super remarkable about it. This is a remarkably Greek sauce for an Italian place, eh? I know. Well, the dominant pizza style in Western Mass is Greek, Greek style pizza. pizza. Which yeah. I'm not opposed to. I no. like it. Yeah. No. It's something... Most of your house of pizzas are Greek style pizza. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I love that in certain, you know, it hits the spot. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, even though I grew up eating the New Haven style in our hometown in East Granby, Connecticut, it was a Greek pizzeria. We went there tons more times than I had New Haven pizza growing up. Mm. 
it's fine. You know, it does have the, the roof of cheese, the thicker crust. Or, you know, in the sauce. Yeah, it's iconic in its own way. I think overall, can we go overall? Yeah. I like the crust. I like the color on the crust. I like the crispiness on the bottom. It's got a nice edge to it, and it's, um, you know, fluffy in the right places and sturdy in the other places. And the cheese is too much and kind of unremarkable. Sorry. Overall? It's a little heavy on the cheese side. I don't mind that necessarily. I think it's it's less of a problem on the cheese side than it is on the, the topping side. I think that the crust is okay. The sauce is a little oregano heavy in a way I'm not so sure about. And canned mushrooms will never be my favorite, but they work in this case. And I think with the cheese, we have to expect every pie is going to be like this. And maybe it's an unfair standard. Maybe it's my standard, you know, that we should not judge too because I don't like a roof of cheese, but I know a lot of people love that. And a lot of pizza joints do that because that's what the customers expect. It's so not New Haven doing it that way. Mm -hmm. And the type of mozzarella that the New Haven pizza uses is usually much different, like a fresh mozzarella. Mm -hmm. I don't mind the roof of cheese. It feels like a you pizza house to, kind of... If uh, you have this much sauce, you have to have a roof of cheese. Yeah. I don't mind this pizza at all. I'd even say it's pretty good. Totally. The crust is great. I love the ambiance in here. Oh my the God. chandeliers, the stone lions coming in and these these gorgeous arched windows where you can see everybody making the pizza, mm -hmm. the bar on the other side. This feels super like old school mm -hmm. Italian Springfield, yeah. uh, Salden kind of situation. Absolutely. It's an iconic place for a reason. Right. It's the ambiance, it's the service, it's the history. It all comes together. Yeah. Shouldn't we have like Chianti and baskets? I would. <laughs> I mean, we got a show to do or else I definitely would have. I haven't perfected day drinking on the new gig yet, mm. but I'll get there. So I feel like the last bit of this, because you can't really like finish your, your ruling without talking about the half-life of pizza, which is how good your pizza is as it cools down inevitably from the molten hot you initially got it to, to the stone cold you should never eat it at. I like pizza for breakfast cold. Look, I understand that there are a lot of you out there who really enjoy cold pizza. I am not and probably will never be in your number. but. Some cold pizza is definitely better than others. So I feel like part of our criteria should be, how good is this at room temperature? And I'm not so sure. It's not getting better as it cools down. Yeah. Right, right. There are definitely some pizzas you gotta get like warm or within the first like few minutes out after it's like tolerable. And this seems to be one of those pizzas. Right, or it's a candidate for reheating next day. But not cold, because only a heathen would do that. And not in your microwave, damn oh, it. No, like, no, not, never. no. Stop. No. We're unanimous. Anything, We're unanimous. You can disagree with me on, on everything I say, <laughs> but, but please take this lesson. Do not microwave your pizza. Don't do it. Just don't. <laughs> Red Rose in Springfield, our first stop on our Western Mass pizza quest. Who do you think has the best pizza in Western Mass? Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Or text us at 1-800-639-9120, and maybe we'll explore your favorite pizza place with you next time. Julie O'Connor from Hatfield writes, best pizza is at Vegan Pizza Land pop-ups. And we got an email suggestion. Best pizza, our favorite is Family Pizza Europa on Sumner Ave in Springfield. We love Red Rose, too, but family tends to be a bit more convenient for us. We've grown quite fond of it. Thanks so much for all you do. Like eating pizza? <laughs> keep the shows coming. Your friends Jen, Dave Gilbert, and Daisy Vose in Springfield, Mass. It is a community service. Coming up, talking about the success of our five college teams when it comes to women's basketball with Smith College head Lynn Hersey. And Hampshire College genre Dr. Salman Hamid on whether or not space is for everyone. All coming up in the fabulous 413.
to boldly go where no man has gone before. Some kitchen table astronomy here in Amherst with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid. Mr. Universe, you were just part of a conference that begged the question, is space for everybody? Yes, so I was at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. AAAS. It was in DC. The organization, as the name says, name says, sort of like, you know, it's about the promotion of science, advancement of science. Uh, but this one was, the theme was science for society. Mm -hmm. I was there in particular to attend some sessions which dealt with ethics of space. One was about Artemis diplomacy. So Artemis is the program for the moon that the NASA is um, sort of Artemis, leading. the twin sister of Apollo, an all-female mission to the moon that's being planned. Right, and the session on Artemis diplomacy was very official. Yeah. So meaning to say there was no real ethics part. It was like, well, we have set things right and so and so forth. Like, you know, we are trying our best, like, you know, that as long as everybody plays by the rules, I think we'll be good. Uh, but of course, these were diplomats, more officials, and so you don't get as much out of those kind of sessions right. as an academic, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> it's like, where's the spicy stuff? Like, you know. But uh, the other session that I went to was organized by uh, a subdivision within the AAAS called DOSER. This is the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion. And I've been, um, I was on their board for that, and it's a really fascinating one. So they organized a session which was called Is Space for Everyone? And uh, it had interesting uh, scholars in there. One was, he's an, a native Canadian indigenous astronomer. His name is Hilding Nielsen. And he talked about why it is so important to bring multiple perspectives, including indigenous perspectives, when we talk about exploring the moon, settling the moon, and so on and so forth, because oftentimes it's about extraction of resources. Yeah. And what his point was that, but not everybody thinks like that. I mean, some people believe that land, for example, especially for many uh, indigenous uh, religions in North America, that land is crucial, that you take care of the land. And if you use it, what are you giving back to the land? And that was actually really interesting way he was uh, he, he brought that up and because there was one question okay so what is the what would be the indigenous component of that what would be indigenous astronomy or indigenous way of thinking would be like that's what he said like you know that you cannot own that land in particular but rather like you know you have a relationship with it and I mean these are tough questions I mean I'm not saying that this is easy but these are tough questions and he brought it up the other really interesting one was by uh, Alyssa uh, Hadaji, who is a space lawyer. And Whoa. Yeah, I mean, she, has a, <laughs> she has a degree in space law. And uh, she runs Space Consortium at uh, Harvard and MIT. And she brought up the issue of planetary defense and defense from asteroid threat, for example. And it gets messy very quickly because some of them are using nukes, for example. Mm -hmm. We just did uh, an experiment, the NASA, to push an asteroid off course to see if we could do that. They just got some of the data back about how much material was lost from that sending a spacecraft to crash into an asteroid. It was essentially a successful mission, right? Right, but that was a kinetic one, meaning to say you just slam into an asteroid, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other ideas about having, a, for example, a, a nuclear explosion sort of like near it, near the asteroid to deflect it. Mm -hmm. To push it away. To push it course. away. The problem is that outer space treaty, which everybody assigned, one of the things is that you cannot use 
those kind of weapons of mass destruction, for example, in space. Mm -hmm. And so would you violate that in order to what? What would be the state when you go like, you know what? Screw the treaty. I'm going to explore it, right? Yeah. So she runs these programs where uh, they actually bring in uh, people from various space agencies as well and give them different scenarios because they're creating a framework in terms of thinking about what if there is a real threat, how would we react to that? So this is one of the questions, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, you know, okay, so uh, this is a violation of an international treaty that you are a signatory to. Are you going to do that? One may think, of course, it's to save humanity. Yeah, but how sure are we that yeah. this is going to hit? What would be the damage? So and so forth. So it actually gets messy pretty quickly. It's not unlike the movie from last year, Don't Look Up, where the international community had to make these decisions and they made many of them poorly. Look, I'm just like all of you. I hope to God, I hope to God that this president knows what she's doing. I hope she's got us all taken care of. But the truth is, I think this whole administration has completely lost their mind, and I think we're all gonna die! What I thought was fascinating was she talked about, for example, issues of displacement, that usually when there are crises here, uh, you have people go from one country to another, and usually those are neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. But if you have an asteroid coming in and say, for example, it's not destroying, the, if, they, if it's destroying the entire humanity, well, that's a different scenario, but more likely than not, there can be a size where some parts of the world are going to get destroyed. Well, you cannot just go to the neighboring country. Then the displacement has to be massive. And you can imagine even if, if small migrations these days can cause a havoc, what would happen when you have mass scale and much farther off? Just if you're tuning in, this isn't happening right now. This oh, is all worst case scenario <laughs> planning from a conference that Hampshire College of Astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid just went to. But this is not the war of the world. Yeah, so no. like... A shape is rising out of the pit. What's that? There's a jet of flames springing from the mirror that leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. So if you're Orson just tuning Wells. in in the middle of it, this is not an imminent threat right now. But just to uh, close it down this loop, because as she said that they are doing this interesting scenario this year, and she said that normally they don't announce it ahead of time, but this time they have so people can prepare, these space agency people. And the scenario is such that where you have this asteroid coming in and there is a chance it would hit North America or somewhere in Africa. And so the question is, uh, we don't know yet. Like, you know, so the people are preparing for it. And then it becomes clear that it's going to hit Africa. That, that's your dog, Wookie. Oh, that's right. That's Wookie. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you do then? Right. Right. I mean, what kind of resources you do? So that's, again, so that brings up class. That brings up sort of like other kinds of issues in terms of privileged countries versus unprivileged or like, you know, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So, yeah. So very interesting conversations, very rich conversations. And it is good to know that people are thinking about these things. Another thing that came up, I believe, at the same conference is our favorite topic, aliens. This also came up with Colbert on his late night show talking with Steven Spielberg recently about with all the UAPs, UFOs, Chinese balloons. Again, still, people are buzzing about space aliens. I think that there is something going on that simply needs extraordinary um, you know, due diligence. I mean, I just, I, I would like to hear more about it. I don't know what they are. Uh, my imagination and my love for, you know, I, I don't believe we're alone in the universe. Right, so I should clarify, because if we say aliens came up right. at the AAAS meeting. And AAAS think, stands for again, one? 
American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. Got it. I may never get invited again. Right, right, right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not because they are censoring me, but because there is no evidence for that other than, like, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit. Right. So, and that is precisely what I wanted to talk to you about this because, uh, so for example, there was one session was about how to report on evidence for life beyond Earth. So there is this session at the AAAS conference where uh, you had one astrobiologist, one journal editor, and one uh, science writer for the Washington Post. And there was a sober conversation about, okay, so how hard it is, how difficult it is to figure out really that we have found a microbe which is extraterrestrial, for example, not from here. And they used examples, for example, a famous one, ALH 84001, that was the Martian meteoroid, meteoroid from Mars that was discovered on Earth. And in the mid-90s, uh, people thought, they, in, in fact, there was a big press conference by NASA in which they thought they had evidence for ancient life from Mars. Microbial life. Microbial not life. Intelli not intelligent no. life necessarily, not little green men. And it was a hotly debated issue. And now pretty much most, uh, not everybody, but most scientists believe that it probably was not, that it, what it was was contamination or those were not life forms. And so this is an interesting case that it was announced that it probably is, right? Life. Life. And then there were other cases. More recently, there was the case of potential uh, detection of phosphine on uh, the planet Venus, in the atmosphere of Venus, and that may have sort of like signified maybe there is life and so on and so forth. So there were a couple of examples that people used, uh, but they talked about how difficult it is, right? And, and in fact, um, one of the, the astrobiologists, uh, Heather Graham, uh, she talked about that they have a biosignature assessment framework. And there was a full conference on that, like, how would we determine what, how sure do we have to be? And how do we determine, yes, this is a biosignature uh, of, of uh, sort of like a microbe from outside the earth. And then how do we disseminate that information? And to me, what was striking was that the disconnect between Spielberg and others there's this UAPs out, and of course, well, it's really interesting, like, you know. Yeah, they're and, probably hiding something. And, they're getting ready to tell us something that we're not ready to hear yet. And they are jumping to the, like, Spielberg speculating on, like, you know, maybe it's humans from far future coming back and looking at, I mean, why, I mean, where are we? I mean, like, you know, I mean, forget about, like, you know, the thinking about, are those UAPs alien spacecraft? That's a huge, gigantic claim, and we, I know we talked about it last week, too, but, I just want to say this is the reason that, like this where there is a whole framework for how sure can we be even when there is a microbe and it's a very hard problem and people grapple with that to, you know, I don't understand what this is. It's moving in a different way. I'm jumping to the conclusion that this is a spacecraft, not just, just life, an intelligent civilization that has managed to travel sort of like millions or thousands of light years and have come here and they are hanging out and, uh, you know, just messing with our pilots. I thought that was very interesting, th that contrast. Uh, one thing I brought up, uh, I mean, I asked this question, like, you know, that I consider that as a success story that despite these claims that make a lot of media uh, hype regarding ALH84001, the Martian meteoroid, or life on the atmosphere of Venus, or there was a claim for life in the arsenic, and so on and so forth. It gets a lot of headlines, but then it peters out. So I was like, isn't that a success story that actually if you ask people, do we have evidence of alien microbes? Probably people are going to say no. 
Well, scientific people are going to say no. I think if you ask your general person on the street, they'll probably have seen one of these headlines and say, yeah, didn't we find life somewhere else? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I think... Don't be one of those, people, <laughs> listener. <laughs> I, I mean, I think there are two different boxes the way people think. One is, okay, what do we know in terms of microbes and things like that? But I think there is a separate way of thinking, separate box that comes in when it comes to UFOs. Like, you know, suddenly it's like the, the switch is in a different way. But what they were saying, and I think that the most salient point uh, they made was, it's not that it's a binary thing. Oh, we didn't get life. That's it. It's not interesting. Mm -hmm. No! Actually, finding all of these things, the fact that we are debating those questions so close, actually, it gives a lot of information and it's fascinating. So, for example, well, uh, ALH 84001, the Martian meteoroid, well, it got, gave us a lot of information, including, like, you know, there are organic compounds there and there is all of these other studies of there. Sure, ultimately, it wasn't evidence that there was life, but there was a lot of other stuff. So. These are really interesting, informative results, except that in none of these cases there has been life. And that is a good reminder that when you have these kind of announcements in science, that is the beginning of inquiry, not the end. Ah, we found life and now we can just sit back. Even with UAPs, like, you know, if, even if they were real and uh, listeners, if is a bit a big thing. That may simply be the beginning of thinking about it, let alone speculating on, oh, they must, they may be humans coming back or they have their, this intention, that intention. We cannot say anything uh, because we don't know. Hampshire College astronomer, Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, one of your other roles is on the board of Amherst Cinema. The Oscars is this coming weekend. Do you have any favorites that you're rooting for? Oh man, that's, uh, and, and Monty, you and I are going to, uh, we may get into a fighting match if I say it, uh, what I really want to say. Go ahead, because <laughs> I will kung fu fight you. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, no, I think I loved Tar in terms of thinking about a movie that's sort of like, you know, grand scale. It's a great, rich story. That's the Cape Blanchett uh, conductor one. That's exactly right. You want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. You've got to supplement yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. So I absolutely loved it, and uh, and I and I think that's that's really good. Uh, which one are you favoring, Monty? Everything, everywhere, all at once. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses, and you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. It is my favorite movie in a long time. I've watched it three times. I love everything, everywhere, all at once about it. It's so good. It's already cleaned up the other <laughs> award ceremonies. And you, you didn't love it. Um, okay. Police is also going to kung fu fight you <laughs> when she hears this. No, I, I, I love the first half. And then I was just like, okay, now they're just throwing everything but the kitchen sink. And no, actually, including the kitchen sink. Sucked into... A bagel. And it just became just random and... Okay, I don't want it because I know a lot of people love it and I'm not going to spoil it, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, Banshees of Inisherin. I mean, I think... I mean, I loved it. I just watched it over the weekend. I mean, that, it was fine. 
Oh, come you, on! Beautifully you are active, just getting but... back at me, like, you know, for not liking or for not loving. I actually didn't say I, I didn't sort of, like, you know, hate it. I just said, like, you know, it was fine. Everything everywhere all at once and something else and all of that stuff. But come on! Best movie in the last three years. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, come on. Okay, but Ben the Mini Sharon, good movie about life and death and friendship and all of that stuff. And, and you have put it in jeopardy now. <laughs> Coming up... Women's basketball is on fire right now in Western Massachusetts. We'll talk to Smith College head coach Lynn Hersey and Kristen Hughes, director of athletics and recreation at Smith, about the school's connection to the sports history and what the teams at the five colleges are up to as we lope towards the madness that is March. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. A headline from the Weekend Daily Hampshire Gazette, Morgan Morrison's late heroics propel Smith College past St. John Fisher into third consecutive NCAA D3 Women's Basketball Sweet 16. Joining us here on the Fabulous 413 is Smith College head coach Lynn, coach Lynn Hersey, Director of Athletics and Recreation Kristen Hughes, Ciara Lawrence, Sports Information Director at Smith, Carolyn McDaniel, Director of Media Relations at Smith, and Sam Intruder. Elizabeth A. Woodson, 1922, Professor of Education and Child Study, to talk about Smith basketball past and present. That was a long list of people. They're all here. Yes. And <laughs> since we know Sam has to go quickly, what I found out just last week, thanks to all of you, was that Smith is where women's basketball was created. Hey, and uh, thanks for having us. And boy, I've got the great gig because I get to watch the awesome amazing, extraordinary women's basketball team coached by Lynn Hersey and her coaching staff do really magical things. And as the broadcaster, I feel a special obligation to honor the legacy and the history of Smith College by recognizing the fact that it is not just Ainsworth Gymnasium, but is the Sandra Berenson Gymnasium. And here's why. In 1890, Sandra Berenson goes from Boston to Northampton, becomes the director of physical education, and she gets this sort of story hearing that James Naismith had invented this basketball game down at the Springfield YMCA that involves peach baskets and balls. And she goes to check it out and she comes back and she says, that game is not just for men, that game's for everybody. And so in 1893, she organizes the very first women's basketball game in our gymnasium. It's the freshmen's versus the sophomores. There were like 800 people in the gym and it was awesome. And from here at that moment, we are now living into what I think is one of the best stories in sports at any level, and that is our Smith College basketball team. So I'll turn it over to the real uh, people <laughs> who are, are at this story, and that is Coach Lynn Hersey, Kristen Hughes, and all of her people. You had an exciting weekend of play. Give us a rundown of what went on and what's next. Coach? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, thanks, Sam. I appreciate that. That was a great assist, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of a layup for him. He knows all that stuff. I know. T totally. Very true. Very true. Well, uh, that's the first layup I ever hit under pressure. So believe me. <laughs> They're hard to do. Yeah. They're hard to do when you're right there. Uh, well, I'd like to echo, too. Thank you so much for having us on. It's a real privilege. Uh, we had a great weekend in Ainsworth. We were uh, part of the um, first and second rounds of the NCAA tournament. Uh, in our first, first round, we played SUNY Morrisville. Um, and in our second round, we were uh, fortunate enough to play St. John Fisher. 
Uh, it was a lot of exciting basketball in Ainsworth Gym, two uh, great teams that came in to, to compete with us. Um, and, you know, some historic moments for sure. In the first game, we, um, we were red hot from the three-point line um, and uh, finished the game making 20, 23s in that game. So it gave our, our crowd some excitement that way. And then the second game was pounded inside and a very different way to win the game, but a one-point victory over St. John Fisher, who was you know, extremely well coached with a lot of very gifted and talented uh, athletes on their side. So um, looking forward to the weekend ahead, another, another uh, big weekend of uh, great basketball and well-coached teams and teams from different regions. So um, looking forward to it. Tell us a little bit what happened with that one-point game the other day. How did it come down to the wire like that? Yeah, um, you know, basketball is a game of runs and possessions and how many possessions you're going to get because you have a 30-second shot clock. And so if you're managing a lead or, um, in our case, we were we were trying to come from behind, um, you know, the last two minutes or last four minutes really are pretty critical in sort of the strategic part of the game, um, how many possessions you can get and – you know, it's all about trying to get defensive stops and, and being able to score on, on uh, your offensive end. But uh, Morgan Morrison was was in uh, foul trouble for us. She plays a, a, a post for us earlier in the game um, and in the fourth quarter. You know, we we went back to her around six minutes left to go. And, you know, the plan was definitely we felt like we had the best matchup through her. Um, and we uh, we our guards did a great job getting her a lot of looks, a lot of touches. Um, and she came through for us very big down the stretch. So that in combination of uh, with uh, some of our guard play defensively was really critical too. I mean, we came up with some big steals um, in two possessions leading up to sort of the five point push we had to take the lead. Uh, so playing both sides of the ball, really important, um, you know, down stretch. Now, I'm going to make you do just a little bit of technical explaining here for Monty, who doesn't really have a lot of basketball I don't basketball follow knowledge. any basketball of any kind. Can you explain what foul trouble is? <laughs> yeah, so uh, each player gets uh, five fouls. Uh, they can be called for five fouls throughout the course of a 40-minute game. Um, and so as coaches, when your, your players get in early foul trouble, so that would be most of us would consider two fouls in the first half, um, you know, getting to a point where if you catch your third foul in the first 20 minutes, it makes it really hard to play aggressive basketball in this, you know, the last 20 minutes. So that's where we get a little, every coach has a different philosophy, but, you know, we, we typically try to um, manage those fouls and, and, you know, allow our players to have a little bit more of an aggressive edge in the second 20 minutes of the game. Um, so that's where you have to be a little bit careful, a little bit strategic about rotations. Tell us, before we take a quick break here, a little bit about Morgan Morrison and, and her role on the team. What year is she, and, and what does she mean to the Smith College team this year? Yeah, Morgan's a, a senior for us, um, and she plays a, a post player, which is you know, primarily someone who plays in the paint, back to the basket. Um, the paint is the part right down. in front of the net, right? Yeah, like, you know, sort of <laughs> foul line in and, yeah. Um, she's, she's athletic. She's, you know, six, one really strong, uh, great footwork, um, you know, can play through contact. Uh, so she's just a player that is really very efficient, um, an efficient scorer. So she can score a lot of points in a, you know, with, with minimal touches, 
um, and also in a short period of time. So for instance, she played 25 minutes of a 40 minute game um, this past uh, Saturday and she had 24 points and 11 rebounds in 25 minutes. Um, so we're hoping that, you know, we keep her out of foul trouble to play 35 <laughs> and who knows what that will bring for us. Right. Um, There's always a troublemaker in the crowd. It's you. I know, I know. It's usually but me. She's been great. I mean, definitely just an, uh, just an engine for us too, like a real uh, determined scorer, determined defender, um, just sort of the heart of the team, uh, always ready for the big play, never afraid of the big moment. Well, coming up, more with Smith College basketball head coach Lynn Hersey and director of athletics and recreation Kristen Hughes. Also, Carolyn McDaniel, director of media relations at Smith, to talk about Smith basketball and maybe some of the other five college teams that have been doing particularly well as well. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Joining us to celebrate their entrance into the Sweet 16 is Smith College basketball coach Lynn Hersey and director of athletics and recreation Kristen Hughes and Carolyn McDaniel, director of media relations at Smith. So this is a really, this is a huge thing. You had a season where you lost one game, which is amazing, but you're a Div 3 school. You mean only one game? Yeah. Yeah, Just that's great. That, that's amazing. The one game. It's not amazing that you lost that game. It's amazing that's the only one. That's the only one. <laughs> um, you're a Div three school. Can you talk about the the division of those NCAA like divisions and how important are Div three sports to the schools where they exist? Um, sure, I can probably jump in here. I mean, I think you know, great. Division three is all about um, promoting what really would be considered, I think, the truest definition of a student athlete. Um, you know, something that I think we preach to our, our teams all the time is that you can be excellent academically and you can be excellent athletically. You don't have to choose one or the other. And, you know, Lynn's team is a great example of that. They had a, a cumulative team GPA last semester of a 3.75 at wow. one of the elite academic institutions in the country while only losing one game. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's, that, that's pretty impressive. Um, and I think that's what makes the experience so special. I think it's interesting that our new governor, as well as our lieutenant governor, both are coll- collegiate basketball players or for formerly collegiate basketball players. Is that something that the Smith team uh, is acknowledging and thinking about? And does the Smith team or any of the other, as far as you know, women's basketball teams in the five colleges have a relationship with the governor or lieutenant governor, especially in regards to basketball? Uh, um, you know, I think uh, Governor Baker has been pretty busy with his Massachusetts uh, constituents, not so many uh, student athletes, but well, I um, meant more Healy, the governor. Yeah, as well as Governor Healy was at. Well, oh, she was actually on our campus. Yes. a few years ago. Governor uh, Baker is now going to go. Former Governor Baker is going to go run the whole NCAA. But uh, yeah, Governor Healy and Governor Driscoll were both uh, were both collegiate basketball players themselves. Yeah, so, she was actually on our campus. Uh, we got a chance to meet her uh, a number of years ago, and uh, Lynn and I were very happy when we found out that she was a basketball player because that was what we were able to talk to her about that evening at dinner. So it was actually <laughs> kind of cool. we kind of want to talk to her about it too. We've asked her to come and play with us. Yeah, I want her to give me a tour of the <laughs> basketball the hall of fame. fame because you know I'm like, like I don't really know a ton about basketball, but uh, yeah. it's exciting to see what's been going on with Smith. What's the next phase for Smith here? So you've entered the Sweet 16. What happens next? Coach, Lynn Hersey? Yeah, well, um, we, we play, we, we're fortunate enough to host this weekend. So that's a really pretty significant accomplishment. Um, we're down to 16 teams left in the tournament bracket. 
Um, so we will have four of those 16 here at Smith. And um, the goal, without a doubt, is to win both games and nice. find ourselves in a final four. Um, and that's been the goal of this team from day one. Uh, we had a lot of players who, during the COVID year, um, we had the same team together. Uh, and a lot of them deferred a year academically. Um, a couple of them decided to take a fifth year and do our, uh, our our master's program here at Smith so that we could try to stay together and have another opportunity um, to compete and to, you know, bring Smith's name into the national spotlight. And um, ultimately, they've done all of that. So uh, the goal, you know, we, we still have a lot of work to do. We're very well aware of that. It will be a big week of preparation. Um, and we take our preparation really seriously. We work hard and uh, many, many hours of getting prepared for the weekend. But ultimately, uh, you know, I feel like our team will be very locked in and excited for the opportunity. And we won't run from the moment. We're going to run toward it. So uh, looking forward to doing that. I'm going to take a broad stroke here and because, like, UMass Amherst has – Although they lost their A-10 bid like this past weekend, is still like way up there. You've like you're at the top of your division. Can we talk about the importance of women's sports, especially being in perhaps the longest running organized women's sport? Yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately what basketball um, or our our team and our program try to really promote is that you know, being part of these experiences really generates a confidence and a self-esteem within our women. And we feel like they're battle tested, they're prepared for challenges that are ahead. And those challenges will come in all different forms in the next 50 working years of their life, you know? And so the ability to be a part of a team, to be under pressure moments, to handle pressure, um, to be able to multitask like they do in terms of being a student, an athlete, a friend, a daughter, you know, it, it's just, it's all encompassing and, um, you know, I think at Smith, we do it the right way. Uh, there are no show shortcuts to character. There are no shortcuts to integrity. There's no shortcuts to winning. Um, and so you've got to do each phase really well and, you know, have a, um, you know, great leadership that sort of leads the way. And, you know, I think our, our players are going to be um, so impactful in the rest of their lives and whatever they choose to do. And I think the basketball experience you know, will be a cornerstone that they can lean on moving forward. We're speaking with Smith College head coach of the basketball team, Lynn Hersey, whose team just made it into the Sweet 16 after a thrilling weekend of basketball. They've got, uh, we've got UConn down the street uh, being famous for basketball. And as I just learned last week, and we learned on this show today, uh, women's basketball started at Smith College in the middle part of the 19th century. Uh, do you the think end that... end of the 19th century. Well, I don't know. I thought he said middle part. I thought he said 1950-something. That's middle to me. Um, if Is it drawing basketball players from around the country with the legacy of, of New England and women's collegiate basketball, and specifically Smith, that has that history where basketball for women started? Well, during the recruiting process, we certainly make that known. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big, that's unique to us. No one else can claim that. Um, and it's about joining a, a long legacy of history. You know, and, and certainly where the sport was invented to now trying to be at the top of it, um, you know, hundreds of years later. I mean, that, you know, that's a that's a pretty significant um, full circle moment for us. Uh, and, you know, that that's a that's a big part of why, you know, we're able to attract the sort of elite student athlete that we are able to. 
I mean, obviously Smith in general is an incredible institution with a lot of opportunity. Um, and we play in a region where there's a lot of really good competitive basketball. So due to all those factors, we, you know, we're able to uh, attract a, a great pool of, of uh, prospects. But I will say, you know, being a women's college, like, and we feel pretty much uh, the, the spotlight of the school. And, and that's something unique. I mean, I think that's really validating for our women to be a part of that. Um, you can just come to the game on Saturday and see, you know, it, it's a packed gym. There's no room. There's no more room, you know, <laughs> and that's not an experience that, that, you know, female athletes get to, to feel all the time. Um, so I think that, you know, that's something we have a lot of pride in too. And, um, you know, this community, I mean, we earn it, we work hard and we're good. Like we said earlier, we only lost one game <laughs> out of 29, right? So, <laughs> you know, we work for it, but the community really shows up for us. And that's pretty, that's a pretty special, um, partnership and, and one we do, we don't take for granted in our program. That's fantastic. Smith College head coach Lynn Hersey, as well as the director of athletic and recreation at Smith, Kristen Hughes. Congratulations once again. We're all rooting for you here in the 413 that Smith goes all the way to the Final Four and takes home that championship. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Come to the game. Yeah. Yes. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> I know Bart Rankin, our engineer, was there on Friday night. He's giving us the thumbs up. So, yeah, it's an excellent thing to go do. <laughs> Tomorrow on the show, a queer, friendly, literal underground nightclub. We'll talk to Ange Buxton about taking over 10 forward in Greenfield. Amy Traverso, food editor for Yankee Magazine, will be joining us at the NEPM Wine and Food Lovers Weekend, and she'll join us on the radio tomorrow. And we'll help kick off Massachusetts Maple Month at Maple Corner Farm in Granville. Our director is Tony Dunn, accidentally down with the sickness. Our engineer is Betsy Cordes, intentionally up with people, specifically babies. Our technical team is Kara Crashed Foster, Bart Rankin-Roger, and Punk Rock Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse. Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, and Smith alumna Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Glee Smith. See you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.